Today's episode of Growing Pains with David Campbell on the Unsettled Media Podcast Network is brought to you by the It's the Economy Stupid blog. That's David's blog. It's a blog about economic development in Atlantic Canada. Let's get to the show. Welcome, listeners, to another edition of Growing Pains, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to economic development in Atlantic Canada. If you get a chance, take a look at my new post over at It's the Economy Stupid on how jurisdictions should develop an export development strategy. In the wake of COVID-19, this will be more important than ever. As always, I appreciate your feedback. You can find the blog by Googling It's the Economy Stupid and my name or just Campbell or by going to davidwcampbell.com. Don't make the mistake of going to davidcampbell.com. That is actually the website for an Australian actor and not myself. So it's davidwcampbell.com, or you can just Google, it's the economy stupid and my name. Today is November 12, 2020, and Miriam Zittner, Vice President of the Halifax Innovation District at Halifax Partnership, joins us to talk about the Halifax Innovation District, a small five-square-kilometer zone in the city's urban core that is home to a high concentration of research and development assets, post-secondary education institutions, startup incubation and acceleration organizations, and over 100 IT and life sciences firms. Miriam will give us an update on efforts to foster more collaboration between the government and startups, between large firms and startups, and between post-secondary education and startups. She tells us about the Halifax Innovation Output Outpost, which is a partnership between the Halifax Regional Municipality and the Halifax Partnership meant to advance the role of innovation within municipal government by tapping into the innovation capacity and infrastructure in the city's startups. R&D organizations, and universities. We also talk about how COVID-19 is impacting the Innovation District and how it might change things uh, post the COVID-19 pandemic. I enjoyed my conversation with Miriam, and I know you will too. As always, we do appreciate your feedback and ideas for uh, subjects on either Growing Pains or the uh, It's the Economy Stupid uh, blog. So please uh, drop me an email or reach out to me on social media. Thank you. Unsettled. Good morning, Miriam Zittner. How are you? I'm great. How are you today? Very good. So I'm really, really glad you're able to join us today for Growing Pains. Uh, Before we get into the discussion about the Halifax Innovation District, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself your background and career and how you ended up as vice president of the Halifax Innovation District at the Halifax Partnership. Yeah, sure. So uh, I started my career actually working in Toronto. I'm from Halifax. Uh, You know, I left, I guess, in 1992 um, for the the brighter lights and greener pastures of uh, of a bigger city, um, which is actually one of the reasons why I'm quite excited about this current role, um, because I've been able to return and, and to help to partner with collaborators on uh, trying to build a, a vibrant city of options. So, so I left in 1992. I worked on the marketing, communications, public relations agency side for about 10 years in Toronto with. Uh, Fortune 100 tech companies. I worked with Microsoft, IBM, and Intel. 
I then moved a little bit westward to Vancouver, where I spent some time working with biotech companies, uh, alternative energy companies, associations, and and all throughout it, um, companies and organizations in various stages of maturation. So early stage startups um, to again more more established uh, technology corporations, and like many good Haligonians, I always thought I would return to Halifax. Um, so I did that after traveling in my mid-30s. Uh, I traveled across India and Asia uh, on a motorcycle for about a year and a half and then came back to Halifax where I um, continued to work with the companies that I'd worked with outside of the region for about five years or so. And I really sort of felt like I was in purgatory. I was happy to be home, but I really wasn't quite home. I was working from my home office. I was traveling a lot and didn't really feel like I'd accomplished the goal of returning to Halifax, returning home and, you know, getting entrenched in, in our community here. And so I stopped uh, freelancing and, and began in my role as director of business development and client service with Storm Kelvey, um, which is Atlantic Canada's uh, largest law firm. We four offices in six provinces. So I did that for about five years and um, continued to think about, you know, my original view on returning to Halifax and the reason why I left and and my my time as a freelancer working for companies outside of the region. And really, I, I intended always to come back to help and participate in building opportunities for others, which certainly we were able to do it uh, at Stuart McKelvey, but this role with the Halifax Partnership, which is really dedicated entirely to the service of community and entirely to trying to um, attract and retain talent and, and work with uh, established corporations and startups to try and build value is something that resonated with me. It resonated with me since I left in 1992. So very excited to be, uh, to be working with partners in this role. So we spend a lot of time in the Maritimes in Atlantic Canada obsessing about retention, uh -huh. particularly youth retention and now immigrant retention, but certainly youth retention. But I find the people that get a chance to leave, see a bit of the world and come back. And now not, not everybody gets to motorcycle across Asia. <laughs> uh, that's an interesting uh, little benefit. Uh, but they come back with skills and a knowledge that they would never have achieved if they hadn't left. So I think this is, you know, your story is another great story of why we shouldn't be too obsessed with youth retention, let people go see the world and many of them will find their way back and will bring uh, skills uh, and talents with them. Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, what I think, you know, going and coming back enables is a view of the art of the possible. And so sometimes I hear people talking about well, you can do anything here, you don't have to leave, and this is really quite true. And I think no one is saying that you must leave to get something done. But I reflect on you know, some of the comments that Steve Jobs, for example, would have made about creativity and the ability to create new value, and that is having a multiplicity of inputs and the ability to connect dots. And I, and I see experiences as dots, and so, the more experiences you have, the better able you are to be create, creative and uh, and contribute to creating value. And, 
and for me, the point of creating value is not, you know, a bigger house and more cars and more expensive clothes. It is really um, to be able to be in flow. And so, you know, you'll hear uh, people in economic development talk about increased GDP and increased population, and these are very numerically based. Uh, you know, in, in Halifax, and we're about set with the partnership to create a new five-year plan. But uh, for the last five years, we've been focused on uh, building a GDP of 30 billion and a population of more than 550,000. And again, this is all great, but I come back to the question: Why? For everything, really? Why? Who cares? And uh, another reason why I was attracted to this role and why I think about growth is is providing people with options. And so, you know, when you operate in a, in a small economy, um, well, people do think about prosperity. What I think about more than that is choice. And so if you have uh, more people with more diverse experiences creating increased value and, and more jobs, you have a population of people who are in flow. They have choice. And so they're, they're best aligned um, with how they spend their days. If you have a fewer number of companies, people will take whatever they can get so that they can put food on the table. And, and that certainly is, is a necessity, but wouldn't it be great if you had more choice and you could actually choose to be in a profession or in, in a role that really aligns with your personal characteristics and values and spent the day uh, doing something that you were great at and loved. I think that's that's where we create a, a vibrant and, and valuable community, and, and that's what I need to do. That's what the traveling does, and, and the uh, you know the increased number of experiences and dots. That's fantastic. I think I tend to obsess or spend more time worried about fiscal sustainability and ensuring that you know Nova Scotia and New Brunswick can pay for healthcare. And that's why we should be focused on economic growth. But you've got a different lens on that. You're thinking about quality of life and, and, and options and the ability to have a dynamic labor force that offer a labor market that offers different career paths for people and so on. And that's, I would think Halifax must be getting just about to the size where you can start to see that because obviously scale is important when you're talking about those kind of options and you have more of those options in Toronto, for example, than you'd have in, I don't know, Moncton. Uh, but Halifax is starting to get to be of a certain scale where those kind of choices and options are, are more uh, ample. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, to your point, it's not one or the other. Um, uh, you know, you need to have a, a um, significant tax base that can pay their taxes. And I do think about healthcare. Good Lord, certainly within the context of the last uh, six months or so. Anyway, thinking about that's never been more important. But um, I find myself disaggregating how you get to a large tax base and how you get to solving problems around healthcare and how you get to solving problems around transportation and uh, the inputs to get to the outputs that we think about and talk about when we talk about economic development. Again, um, you need to have the people, the people involved. So people need to want to be here. They need to be productive in their jobs. You know, this whole thread, which I, I actually don't hear people talking about a lot, but this notion of presenteeism where you can have uh, people working in their jobs, but they're not really at their best. That really doesn't do anything for any of us. You also see a, a whole lot of churn in those circumstances. 
So I think um, like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, if you get down, get down to the inputs um, required to get to a healthy and vibrant health system, a transportation system that meets the needs of people and companies, affordable housing that's accessible to many, you know, inviting, uh, inviting immigrants to come and stay and, and work here. You need to ensure that people are in environments where they can be at their best, where they can contribute as much as they can because they want to. Miriam, I didn't know we were going to head into the Maslow's hierarchy of needs self-actualization path this morning. So that, that's very nice. Nice that we took that tangent. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so listen, I want to talk to you about the Halifax Innovation District because yeah. we talk about uh, all of these things around um, around workforce choices and options. I was surprised a few years ago, I took a look at the demographics and economic and industry profile in the district. And I was one of the probably the most shocking thing was the average age of people living in the district. Um, uh, and that's not students, right? So from a yeah, sense yeah. perspective, that's people that are permanently located in that area. So it's incredibly young, incredibly educated. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the district? What is it? It's geography, some of its key assets and so on. Yeah, sure. Uh, so the Halifax Innovation District is, uh, you know, both a geographic con concentration uh, and also an economic engine within the district, which now is about five square kilometers. We have a number of different incubators and accelerators focused on nurturing startups and connecting corporates into uh, into innovative thinking and companies that can help them create new value. So the district has. Um, uh, Volta, which is a tech-based incubator accelerator, it's about 60,000 square feet right now and is the second largest uh, accelerator outside of the Kitchener-Waterloo corridor in the country. There's a lot of great things happening here. Um, we have Innovacore focused predominantly on uh, life sciences and biotech. They find, fund, and foster startups. The Center for Ocean Ventures and Entrepreneurship is focused on oceans. Amira Idea Hub uh, has a, a large concentration in engineering and, and you know, prototyping and, and building products. And then we have a number of other people and organizations that are, are funding and partnering with the startups here, including our academic institution. St. Mary's is building a new building focused on entrepreneurship. Partnership. Dalhousie has the Creative Instruction Lab. We've done some work with uh, NASCAD. And you just have a, a really fertile environment with government, academic institutions, corporates, startups, and uh, risk capital all sort of working together to try and increase the number of viable high growth startups and scale ups in our region. Is it working? How how how's it been going? So you've been in the role now for for how long? And but the district itself's been around for a couple of years as a, as a concept. So how's it going? Yeah. So the district itself has uh, existed before we named and packaged it. Um, all of the organizations in the district are doing tremendous work. The outputs are strong. I think last year CDL um, when they did a super session in Toronto, the companies. Uh, out of our Dalhousie-based Creative Destruction Lab were the ones that created the most value uh, across the country. 
So things are going well. The organizations are doing well, and the concept is strong, which is to say building bridges, increasing collaboration, reducing duplication of effort, increasing economies of scale. People are working together. I think, um, you know, at the outset, when you're trying to build a community of creators in a small space, um, historically and in other places, you can see not necessarily infighting, but, you know, people are, everybody's vying for a, a small pie. And so what I've observed in the last almost three years is definitely increased collaboration, definitely uh, a willingness to share best practices. There's tremendous breaking down of silos. And because of that, you see, um, you see more, more companies benefiting from the multiple resources that we have in the district. So I want to talk to you about the role of the Halifax or Halifax partnership mm -hmm. in sort of facilitating this. You talked about collaboration. Is that like, what, what is, what specifically does the partnership do? What's its role? Is it promotion? Is it collaboration? Is it, what, what exactly is the partnership doing besides it was your idea to sort of put these boundaries and, and label this thing, what's your role uh, moving forward? Yeah, so the notion of um, of building the Halifax Innovation District was one that was conceived of as a result of uh, partic participation in the MIT Regional Entrepreneurship Acceleration Program. So the, the, the concept of it predates my leadership position within it. Um, but we act sort of as a cat catalyst and aggregator, but also an engine. Of, uh, of new value in and of itself. And so last year we collaborated with the Halifax Regional Municipality to launch the Halifax Civic Innovation Outpost at Volta. Um, this is a collaboration between many partners where we focus on social innovation, using the city as a living lab and a data transparency project with the city. And so what that means is that we're working with startups directly to help them prototype and beta test and evolve their products in a friendly environment. What we hear often from, from startups is that, you know, they need a first customer. And, and we all know that in the early stages of creation, um, that's when you have your most opportunity for learning. There's a lot of pivots. And so what we're aiming to do is create a sort of a sandbox in which our startups can have access to, um, to resources that they can use to test the products. So for example, we just partnered with Remote uh, and with Volta, they have a heat sensor camera that enables people to walk into Volta or walk into the Halifax partnership or any other customer and have their temperature taken as we consider the implications of community spread in COVID. And so there's a camera and there's a, a checklist that you go through before you enter a building. Um, there are another, a number of other uh, startups that we're working with in the background that um, we're going to connect into the Halifax Partnerships 100 private sector investor base. Um, we've got investors in the partnership who have expressed an interest in supporting our startup, startup ecosystem, understanding the tremendous value of startups. When they're successful, they're responsible for the most net new jobs. And so our established corporations want to help. So we've got um, some large organizations that are going to beta test and prototype some of the startups uh, coming out of our innovation district. Uh, and that's a, a role that we play in terms of, um, you know, being a connector and a 
catalyst to the creation of new value. Um, do you think? Do you think that's going to um, really take root? I mean, I've you know we've been talking about that for a number of years. This idea of a sandbox, or mm-hmm. as you said earlier, this you know that governments and large local industries you know, the, the interacting with the startups, the startups get good at something locally with a local yeah. customer mm-hmm. and then can then, once they're good at it, take it globally. Whereas a lot of our startups historically have had to start, you know, literally trying to develop markets outside the region because they couldn't find a local customer. So I think this is a great concept. I just wonder and I'm, I'm what your thoughts are around, is this going to be hype or do you actually think, for example, those investors, there'll be many collaborations coming out of that and, and the city, for example, the municipality actually, you know, doing five, 10, 15 projects uh, directly with, with some of these startups? Yeah, I think that's a perfect question. I'm very, very glad that you asked it because it's, it's real um, and required. And so uh, I know for certain that I have, five startups that I'm working with, and we are, you know, within the first year of having launched the outpost and focused on this as a city is a living lab. We've got five startups that we are connecting with directly one-on-one with the partnerships, private sector investors. Um, so it's happening. It's not a question about whether it will or it won't. It's in progress. And, and once there are contracts signed, there'll be more announcements uh, to be had. Uh, and not only is it happening, I think it's integral. And I, I won't sleep until until we make sure it continues to happen. I mean, this notion of corporate innovation, you know, like you, I've heard many, many people talk about it. I mean, we're, we're a community of people who talk about a lot of really great things. Um, what we need to do is, is have a sense of urgency around those ideas and action put towards them. And that is what the district is doing. Because we're, um, you know, I liken us to Switzerland, we're, we're sort of in the middle of things and not uh, in, in this area, not beholden to one specific organization, but rather at the service of many, it makes it easier for us to be a catalyst to change. So the partnership, again, has these 100 private sector investors. They've expect, uh, expressed a willingness to connect with startups right now. And that is happening right now and is uh, a key component of, of the innovation district. So where where are the startups coming from? I, I know that, you know, I've been to Waterloo. I've toured the facilities out there, uh, did some work in that community a few years ago. And a lot of the startups or the new entrepreneurs actually come from outside the region and because Mm -hmm. they actually want to be there or there's some sort of university collaboration. I recently did some work with the biosciences cluster on PEI Uh, and was surprised that 40% of the startups have at least one founder from outside of Canada. That was very surprising to me. That seemed very uh, not typical for Atlanta, Canada. So what about in the innovation district and the uh, incubator assets you've been talking about? Where are most of these idea generators are these new entrepreneurs coming from yeah um what we're seeing now is a lot of uh, entrepreneurs are coming right out of university um right out of university so we have the the largest the largest concentration of post-secondary academic institutions in the country here and that base of students and ideas um, is quite diverse. So there, there are a lot of uh, immigrants here. There are a lot of people from outside of the region that are 
our uh, our students at these academic institutions, and increasingly as our innovation ecosystem grows, the idea generators will be representative of the, the student population, which is quite diverse. In the meantime, um, we're still looking pretty good. You know, there's more than 70 languages spoken in the district. Um, they're young, they're people of diverse experiences and backgrounds, and uh, the ideas coming out of the district represent a number of different verticals. So uh, we, we do have a large concentration of mix in terms of the kinds of people and where they're from that are building new companies here. And that is set to continue as the incubators and accelerators focus more so on, you know, diversity and inclusion. And as our academic institutions continue to invite um, students from outside of the region. So this talent, as you know, is highly mobile. Um, mm -hmm. They can live anywhere, and increasingly, probably post COVID nineteen, can it, you know this this talent pool will be even more mobile. Why why would they want to locate in the innovation district in Halifax? I love that question. I love that question. It's making me smile. Um, and I think you're asking the right person because I've lived in many, 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 many different cities across our country and beyond. Value proposition that the Halifax Partnership talks about with respect to talent, location, and cost are strong here. I mean, you know, we, we've got uh, access to 7,600 kilometers of shoreline. The beach is anywhere from 45 to, you know, 60 minutes away. Um, I recall living in bigger cities where the commute times were pretty intense. Uh, between a half an hour and an hour away of starting, you'd still be in downtown of that city. And so we uh, offered a tremendous lifestyle. I think increasingly um, we're seeing people entering the workforce with stronger ideas about work, life, nature, integration. And that's something that we offer. Um, and the collaboration really is quite strong. And so you know, I, I recently met someone, uh, well, two people actually from Brooklyn who moved to Halifax. They're leading startups. And, you know, within a few weeks of having arrived, um, they had met with the mayor of our city and the CAO to gain a, a greater understanding of the um, economic landscape of our city and where and how the city intends to support them as they they uh, establish roots here. Um, yeah, there's... There's just so much here that you don't really quite get in larger, more dense cities. And I guess I'd just try more succinctly describe them as um, a, a great opportunity to have work-life balance, even if you decide you want to be a workaholic, right? You can, you can uh, work for 12 hours and still get to the beach in 20 minutes. Uh, the collaboration is unmatched. There's a ton of government-backed, um, you know, capital and, and organizations interested in nurturing startups and corporates who are in and come to the region. And uh, there's just tremendous opportunity for growth and a willingness to, to make that happen. So that's the value proposition work, you know, workaholics come because you don't have a you know, you you can still work twelve hours a day, but you then you're getting home, your commute is much shorter. Well, yeah, I mean, I go back to the notion of choice, right? You can be a workaholic or not. Um, here, you have more time, right? Because you're not spending you're not spending oodles of time in a car. You can you can uh, work 
10 to 12 hours if you so choose and still get home for dinner with your family, or you can not do that and, and still enjoy the amenities of, of, the, of a welcoming and, and increasingly more cosmopolitan city. Yeah, I don't know if that's properly marketed. I mean, I know we talk about it generically, but I, I think last year Burlington was named as the top place to live in Canada. And I went in and wow. I looked at some of the numbers. I mean, it's a beautiful city, yeah. small city. But when I looked at the commute times, most people leave, most professionals have to leave Burlington to go to work in somewhere in Toronto, uh, have large, long commute times. Housing costs now in Burlington are going through the roof. Yeah. So I thought to myself, yeah, you've got lots of green spaces, you know, and it, it, you've got a nice sort of hip environment, but really the best place in Canada to live. So it's kind of interesting. And, and I, I've come to the conclusion that the actual uh, journalists or whoever makes that determination probably lives in Burlington. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll have to invite them here and put them up in an Airbnb a little bit to, to get them to whistle a different sound. So I think what, what you're telling me though, is you are trying to straddle a line. You're trying to say, you know, Halifax is, large and dynamic and and urban but it has many of the benefits of maybe a smaller urban center in, in the fact that housing costs are more reasonable commute times are reasonable uh etc right quality of life attributes are 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 maybe stronger than they might be in in the larger urban centers yeah yeah you're exactly right and and you'll see um institutions that study innovation districts um like the brookings institute that talk about the collision of uh, physical networking and economic assets and the rise of the mid-sized city. And so um, mid-sized cities are, are having their day when it comes to inviting uh, the next generation of, of, uh, of creators and inventors and, and workforce to establish themselves in, in places that they can um, create new ideas, build companies, travel, and still enjoy their day-to-day. So I want to talk to you a little bit about the impact of COVID-19. I mean, Halifax was really booming pre-COVID-19. If you look at the numbers, it you know, had one of the highest immigration rates in the country among metros, strong population growth, one of the better GDP growth rates among the metros, uh, all that stuff that you guys actually do a good job of publishing. One of the things I like about the Halifax partnership is it's very good at publishing report cards and, and data on the, on the community. Um, but curious to know if you've seen or how COVID impact, how COVID-19 has impacted the district in the short term. And then I'll come back and ask you about maybe some of the longer term implications, but what have you seen in the last five or six months since this pandemic hit the region and hit the country? And by the way, it didn't really hit us. Right. But we're seeing yeah. a lot of, we're seeing a lot of ripple effects here. Yeah, so um, I will say, uh, no surprise, I'm quite concerned, actually. Um, Patrick Hankinson, who leads a government-backed venture cap fund here called Concrete Ventures, did some research a few months ago about exactly that. And what the research discovered was that our startups are really quite optimistic, um, but they are, you know, running tight on cash. So what we have here is a large number of startups that are very, very early stage. They're sort of friends and family, potentially seed, 
you know, there's a few Series A. We don't really have a ton that are in B or C at the moment. We're really in the early stages of nurturing a large volume of startups from which some stars will emerge. Um, that means that they don't have a large customer base just yet. A lot of them are still in early product de development stages and, uh, and reliant on venture cap venture cap funding which is a tight market at the moment so you know we talked earlier about the importance of corporate innovation i think now is is a time that is super acute where we need to be able to connect our our startups into more established corporations that have weathered the storm um and are in a position of being able to and must think about creating new value for themselves but are also in a privileged position of being able to actually support the growth and development of our startups and they need it. I think we've spent a lot of time and effort and resources on nurturing this startup ecosystem, which has been the right thing to do. Again, the, the, the research and science behind it says that economic districts are intense um, um, you know, prosperity engines for the region. So there's value in that. But because of COVID, uh, we're, we're really in a place of risk. And I think now more than ever, we need our established corporations to not think about their companies in traditional ways and to think about how they can create new value in partnership with our startups. It's imperative for both of them, really. So the startups become part of the solutions to the challenges faced as a result of the pandemic? Uh, they can be, yes, definitely. I think it's really quite symbiotic. And so uh, there are, you know, a number of, of established corporations that are fairly small, but maybe multi-generational that run, you know, five to $10 million businesses and have been doing so for 20 years. Um, they really can be thinking about how they can invest, how they do the business if they want to create new value, if they want to evolve from um, being sort of a, a lifestyle business. And there are, on the other side, a ton of different startups that are creating new and interesting products that are solving problems. And if married with traditional business, um, could, could, uh, could create new value and, and solve problems for people and, and expand the opportunities for new jobs. But are you suggesting in general, though, that you're worried that there's going to be a higher attrition rate among the startups as they run out of uh, early stage capital or run out of capital and there's not enough funding to keep them or get them through the pandemic? I'm concerned that there will be a, a weaning in the next uh, six to nine months or so. And is there anything that can be done? You talked about potentially engaging uh, the business community a little bit more, but is there anything else that can be done? I mean, the, it's pretty hard. I mean, government, as you said, there, there's already a number of government-backed venture uh, and capital sources in the region, but is there more more that could be done? Yeah, I think uh, a lot of the incubators and accelerators are thinking about this, and, and that is, um, you know, providing bespoke input to our startups. You see some programs that offer top-line overviews of sales and marketing and legal services. And I think now's the time that we need to roll up our sleeves and, and get involved more closely into supporting the businesses, into providing mentorship, into giving them guidance to ensure that their companies are strong and that they are in a position to be able to, to, uh, 
to get some of the venture cap funding that's out there. Again, it's really it's really quite tight, and so I I see this as a community challenge where um, if there are any large corporations, established corporations that, for example, have a corporate social responsibility budget where they you know typically would spend money supporting not for profits, um, they might want to consider thinking about uh, broadening their perspective on CSR and really inviting uh, their organizations to think about how they can engage with and support startups. It's super important to, uh, to the growth of our community. Are you having those conversations? Are you raising the flag on this? Yes, I am. Um, there are a number of, of uh, consultancies that work with family offices that are developing interests in supporting um, innovation districts and the startup ecosystem, not only from a CSR perspective, but um, because they're later staged career, you know, some of these folks would have built, you know, multi, 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 multi million, if not billion dollar companies and are, are sitting on some money, um, have, have strong experience and a willingness to um, both support and contribute to startups, but also look at how they do mergers and acquisitions differently. I think, you know, a lot of the time, if you, you see a company that has a $200 million M&A budget, they tend to buy or merge with companies that look a lot like themselves. And we are having discussions with those family offices about what it might be like if they, they take that appetite for expansion um, and look at partnering with smaller companies that don't look like them, that if they broaden their perspectives on their own existing companies and brought into the tent some of the startups that solve problems in different ways and had conversations about, you know, maybe doing things a little bit differently, that they'd be surprised by the outcomes. And, uh, you know, not only would it be good for our community, but it would be great for the business as well. It's the whole tenets around, you know, diversity and inclusion. We talk about the value of having different perspectives, not only because it's the right thing to do, but because you get new and better ideas. Uh, we've got folks in family offices that are starting to, to recognize that their their uh, history in M&A looks um, pretty standard and that they, they might actually find that they're uh, quite set up to, you know, increase their value in ways that they hadn't previously thought about if they expanded their perspective on on what it looks like to partner with or merge with a company that looks differently from them. Hmm. Interesting. So let's pivot a bit to more longer term, though. You, you have spent the better part of a half an hour here um, making the case for concentration, collaboration, you know, interaction between firms, sort of cl the closeness and proximity of an innovation district. And now the world is thinking about whether or not that's an asset anymore. So mm -hmm. Richard Florida has come out and said, oops, I might be wrong. Maybe people mm -hmm. now want to be distributed. They want to be yeah. away from areas where, where, you know, p pandemics could potentially, you know, concentrate. And we have a friend or a, an acquaintance in Toronto that lives on like the 14th floor of an apartment building and, and doesn't basically has never left or very mm -hmm. rarely since February because she's worried about the pandemic and just yeah. the, the logistics of actually getting out of her, her apartment complex. So 
Do you think this is going to be hurting Halifax or actually benefiting Halifax? In other words, are we looking at a, a migration to very small rural areas where there's lots of distance between you and your neighbor, whole yards worth of difference? Uh, or are we looking at maybe less sort of the largest urban centers, but maybe midsize and smaller urban centers like Halifax will actually benefit? What's your perspective on that? Um, yeah, I think it's... Uh a great point, and uh, you know, we're members of the Global Institute of Innovation Districts, which um, brings together innovation districts from around the world. Um, strong districts that you know people are, are really quite aware of. Districts in Barcelona and Amsterdam and, and uh, Australia, and this is precisely the kind of conversation that we've all been having together, which is. You know, one of the, the, the values of an innovation district is the, the density of people and the density of assets and this notion of creative collision. And what we've learned over COVID is that people are actually quite functional, you know, when they, they work from home. And so what does that mean to this, this value that we all espoused as being integral to the value of a district? Um, so, so that is top of mind. <clears throat> what I'm seeing is that People are finding new and different ways to interact and, and to collide and to bring people together. Whereas before it would happen organically in the hallway, say at Volta, you know, you'd bump into someone and, and you'd share some ideas or three people would be clustering and two people would know each other. They'd bring the group together and, and uh, new ideas would happen. I'm seeing that happening online. Um, you know, we talk about the future of work and, and everything from, uh, applying for new roles, to interviewing for new roles, to having meetings on Zoom is a thing that's happening. And so we're just bringing something that was in person uh, onto the internet at the moment. And so uh, as far as the impact of that on, you know, how we talk about the value of innovation districts and, and the density that was so important to them remains to be seen. Um, what I care about in the interim is that we are still finding ways to bring people with different ideas together, and we're doing that online because you have to. But yeah, I mean, we, we you know, there's such an opportunity to have space here where you can do that online um, from some really beautiful rural spots in this province. I think it is going to force a bit of a rethink of this because... Um, I think people still want personal connection. They want to, you know, be able to brainstorm and talk and discuss and water cooler and everything else that happens yeah. only in physical proximity. Yeah. But I think this pandemic has showed, as you said, that a lot of the work, though, a lot of stuff can be done remotely. It can be done virtually using one of the, you know, I understand yesterday that Zoom now is worth more than, Exxon Mobil in terms of market cap. I mean, it's crazy. So, so yeah, I think, I think that's the, the new reality for organizations like the Halifax partnership is how do you still engender value from a physical location? Otherwise this will be distributed everywhere or has the potential to be far more distributed and not benefiting from some of the value proposition elements uh, that a place like Halifax would bring in, in the past. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, definitely a conversation that's a, a work in progress. I think we see opportunity here in the province um, to invite people from, from dense cities that 
you know, historically may have thought, well, I need to be in Toronto. I need to be in New York. I need to be in Boston. And, uh, and the reality is because people are working from the story of their apartment building for months on end, they know that that's not the case because we've all found workarounds and life goes on and, and, and uh, you know, some businesses go on. And so I actually think it presents a tremendous opportunity for this province to invite people from outside of it to come and, and participate in a working remotely um, framework from here. So I want to talk to you a little bit before we end here about the outlook for the district, but for Halifax mm-hmm. uh, as well. You mentioned earlier you're looking at some kind of a new five-year plan. What, um, again, the last five have been pretty good to Halifax. Yeah. What's what's the, and, and COVID-19 kind of mixes things up a bit, but what is the outlook? Are you feeling optimistic about Halifax these days? And if you had to project out four or five years, do you see that as four or five years of sustained prosperity and success or do you see it as four or five years of 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 a murky outlook no it's the same uh prosperity and success so um we're going to be focusing on affordable housing uh climate change food security there are a lot of social things that our city is is working on to ensure this is a a community that provides for all of its citizens Uh, i'm quite bullish on the discussion that we've had about um, a workforce that that is able to work from anywhere and the many opportunities that we have in this province and in this city to invite people in and, and work remotely from here. Um, we're doing a lot of work with the Halifax Regional Municipality on its climate action plan. Uh, it's one of the most ambitious climate action plans in the country and calls for increased jobs. Uh, you know, we're collaborating very closely with them on at the uh, Halifax Innovation Outpost at Volta. And I see, well, certainly there's been a setback. I mean, there's very few that would say COVID hasn't impacted them. Uh, I think our trajectory continues to be strong. Our mayor was just elected in again, and, and our city has grown under his, uh, his purview over the last four years in, in ways that are remarkable. I continue to see an interest in collaboration. I continue to see people um, working and acting as if it is a, you know, a city family. Uh, people want to help. They want to contribute. They want to help startups. They want to work with corporates to increase their value. I think there's tremendous opportunity for us to con- continue on that trajectory. Um, it's just going to look differently. And that that's, you know, not necessarily... Um, something that will will slow us down. It just will simply require new ways of thinking and new ways of collaborating and a recognition that there are some boundaries and barriers that didn't exist before that that we'll need to to explore. So I I think the discussion around economic development has changed quite a bit in the last 20 years. I mean, you raised climate change, affordable housing, and food security as three issues that you're thinking about or, or, or concerned about kind of interesting, you know, that those probably even five years ago would probably not be on the top of anybody's list, but I do feel, and I've seen it around the region that, that economic development has to have a, a wider lens. If you don't have housing, 
you know, it, it, it's or, or affordable housing, reasonably priced housing for the workforce, it is a barrier to growth. And climate change is a barrier to growth, but also an opportunity for growth. And even things like labor force, you know, 10 years ago, it wasn't as big a deal to be attracting population to this region because it, it organically was growing. And now we have to do more of it. So if economic development agencies like the partnership or any of them in the region say, well, that's not our business. Well, if it's a barrier to economic mm-hmm. growth and prosperity, guess what? It is your business or it should be your business. Doesn't mean you have to do the work, but you should be out there being very clear with the partners and stakeholders that, that look, if we don't solve this housing issue, it's going gonna, it's gonna to drag our growth potential. If we don't address some of these other issues, it's going to really harm our growth potential. So it is very interesting to hear that you're working on those other issues. So what's the role then of the partnership? Is it more of a advocacy role? I mean, you're not going to personally go out as an organization and solve uh, affordable housing. No, I mean, so, and, and solving any sort of complex issue um, certainly is the goal, but it's not reality, right? These, these issues are very complicated. But what we're saying is that economic growth is for all people. It's for all people. So the, the job isn't to simply attract large corporations from outside of the region to set up shop in the region and, and employ people as they were there. It's to support our people who are in the region so that they are operating from a, a place of you know, health and wellness and ability to be able to contribute and grow. Uh, you take a look at you know, Vancouver's uh, east side and other big cities that have really huge uh, challenges in, in uh, in the wellness of their community and, and what can tend to happen is as cities grow economically, the chasm between the have and have not grows. And, uh, and that's not what we aim to do. We're, we're really at a, at a tipping point and a, and a place in our trajectory where if we bring awareness to the kind of city and province we aim to build, we can build one that hopefully has fewer of the problems that you see larger city centers have uh, in terms of serving the entire population. So it's not growth for the few, it's growth and wellness for everyone. You're sounding a bit like a socialist, Miriam. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I think it's our job to care about people while we build our our corporations. If you want to call it socialism, I suppose, but I I would not describe myself as such. I, uh, no, I'm not. I'm, that's a that's tongue in cheek. I do, <laughs> I do find no, but I do find that a lot of times people that are that are um, oriented towards social issues, social development, uh, ensuring we have appropriate housing and food security, and addressing poverty and crime and those kinds of challenges in our community. Many times, there, many of them. I don't want to mm-hmm. use a broad brush here, but many of them are kind of hostile toward industry and capitalism and, and suspect of the role of the economy, but you seem to be straddling a line where you understand the importance of the economy and startups and investments and growth on that side, but also you cannot ignore this broader uh, uh, group of forces in the community. Yeah, absolutely. And I, uh, you know, I spent prior to this, these last three years uh, working in private sector and would, uh, would maybe describe myself as a, a capitalist with heart. I, uh, I believe very much in, in, in the market, and I believe very much in competition, and I believe very much that uh, you know people will pay for value. And I think that uh, that is how you build a strong economy. You want to have 
people choosing to buy something because it makes life better for them or more enjoyable for them. So I, I do believe in the tenets of, uh, of capitalism, but I think it's very important for us to, you know, care for the citizens in the communities in which we live, work and play. So I apologize for calling you a socialist. I was just, uh, <laughs> just trying to stir the pot a bit there. No, no, all good. Um, Not that so there's anything last... wrong with being a socialist. <laughs> <laughs> one last question. You seem you seem very passionate about this. Yeah. Uh, from from the very first time when we started our conversation earlier, about uh, almost an hour ago now. What drives you? What what really? What what's the source of this passion? I mean, it's not for a lot of economic development folks. It's a pretty dry discipline. Yeah. You seem pretty passionate about it. So what's what's the source of that passion? That's a great question. Um, well, I'm from Halifax. I left in 1992 to, to, uh, to go to bigger cities where I felt like I'd be able to have a greater diversity of experiences and learning opportunities. And, you know, like I said at the top of this, and, and you've just articulated quite well, um, for me, economic development isn't, GDP of 30 billion and population of 550,000. Those are, you know, dry numbers. Uh, it's about the experience of, of creativity and of growth and providing people with environments that they can, can uh, feel free to explore and be creative and, and build value and solve problems for, for people. I mean, the, the startups that we work with, you know, many of the founders experienced a challenge prior to finding their company and said, there's got to be a better way. There's got to be a better way. You know, I spoke with a, a fisherman who talked about having to fill out these papers on the boat and it's like rainy and the papers flying off the side of the boat. So they, he came up with this, um, with this app to help. Um, and that, that's, I like that, you know, I think about things in terms of stories and contributing to making life uh, better for people. And, and I, and yeah, I, I care about that. I think it's fun for the people who are doing it. I think it's helpful for the people who end up buying and using it. And, uh, I, I think there's a lot of positive energy around that. Yeah. And I think that again, that sort of sometimes gets lost in the shuffle. So economic developers are out trying to attract, you know, big, you know, conglomerates or trying to help big companies make more money when what we're really trying to do is create a strong economy so that people can achieve their life goals and have a good quality of life in the community. And that's a, a wide range of issues, right? So I think that's, you know, in many ways, what economic developers do, what the partnership is doing, what you're doing is, is pursuing and making a stronger environment so people can achieve their, their economic, but also social and community objectives. Yes. Yeah. 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 Precisely. I mean, it's all for people about people. If we have a weak economic foundation, it, it dribbles into everything else. Now, if we hurt, harm the economy or harm the environment or harm our society through economic growth, then that can have negative effects, which we have to address. Anyway, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk with you this morning, uh, to shine a light on the district, on what you're doing uh, uh, we look forward to following the district moving forward and hopefully we can have you back uh, at some point to talk again. Yeah, I'd love that. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. Okay. Thanks. Bye-bye. Growing Pains with David Campbell is produced by me, Matt George. is engineered by the great Zachary Pelche and is part of the Unsettled Media Podcast Network.